Hi everyone and welcome to episode 16 of Two Lips, One Mic. I'm Cushy. And I'm Anna. And we've got a jam-packed episode for you guys this time around. So um, just as an overview, we're going to start off by talking about the Christchurch terrorist attacks which took place um, just this past week. Um, Thereafter, we're going to talk about um, the sentence of Cardinal George Powell um, and then cover this big uni admission saga taking place in the United States and then, if time permitting, do our usual records. So, some pretty heavy content this week, um, as per every other week. (laughs) I was actually going through some of our old podcasts and um, we had made promises not to be heavy. (laughs) But just so many horrible things have happened. Yeah. And so this um, horrible Christchurch terrorist attack happened last week. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was it's different for a variety of reasons in the sense that we're talking about a white supremacist. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're not going to name him on the show either out of respect. And um, the fact that he live streamed this incident. So you can actually see blow by blow exactly what happened. Mm. Um, and it was so widely distributed as well. Like I think I saw today that someone has been arrested for distributing it. So a young boy was distributing this video and it, it pretty much inciting hatred. And so it's um, it's generated some pretty interesting responses. So mm-hmm. with Waleed Ali's um, The Project, mm-hmm. I know that Peter Dutton's office is thinking about suing him for defamation. So just for those people who might not be aware, who is Waleed Ali? Those listeners of ours who might not be aware, who is Waleed Ali? So Waleed Ali is on the project and he is um, he's a political scientist. He works at Monash University and he's a practicing Muslim. He's married to Susan Carland, who um, I adore, and she who is also um, an academic at Monash University. So essentially in this project segment, he was um, – Speaking really from the heart, and mm. I just felt like you couldn't fault it, but he talked about sort of how our political discourse has essentially led to where we are today mm. and that our politicians can now not say all these platitudes without feeling as if they're complicit. So what was your sort of view take on the whole video? Yeah, I I really liked the video. I thought, like you said, he was more or less drawing a causal link between um, attitudes that marginalise Muslim communities in Australia and elsewhere and then the sorts of radical extremist attacks um, that take place because of that discourse in society. So, um, you know, Walid Ali, on the one hand, um, praised politicians for taking a hard line for labelling this as an act of terrorism, even I mean, though it was perpetrated by a white right-wing nationalist. And having said that, in the last few years, there have been counter-terrorism arrests in Victoria of people who are white supremacists. Mm-hmm. So it's not um, you know, entirely accurate to say that police aren't taking white supremacists white supremacy as seriously but I think the public sure has a way to go in terms of one identifying the behaviors the casual racism and um, that kind of those types of attitudes that feeds into this white supremacy mm. 
supremacy. I can't say the word. Um, and um, <laughs> <laughs> it'll come back to you if it's important. It will. But it always makes me reflect on studying terrorism back at university. Same. And yeah. the actual definition of terrorism that when you break it down, mm. it's an act of violence generally targeted at a civilian population with the means of achieving a political objective. That's right. And so in that regard, this most recent um, example of right-wing terrorism is no different from, you know, the sorts of terrorism perpetrated, say, when 9-11 happened or when the Bali bombings happened. Um, Those elements are still satisfied. So why we still distinguish between those acts that are perpetrated by certain groups and not others is kind of staggering to me. Having said that, though, there's been a lot of criticism recently about the media's reporting and the double standards with this person um, as opposed to other um, terrorists who have, you know, a particular, like, different ethnic background. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, um, the Daily Telegraph was talking about him being this, how did this angelic boy become this monster? Oh, my God. Um, We've got other media presentations that have spoken to his grandparents and his mum, who everyone's wringing their hands in despair, and the whole piece about how he used to be this country boy who somehow his travels over to the Middle East has led him to this path of extremism mm. and trying to humanise him, which um, is really... You know, I don't actually think that in and of itself is a bad thing. Like, I think most human beings are united by their shared humanity, right? But It'd I think, be fine if it wasn't the case with other people. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's my point. I'm so, sure if you committed a similar act, you would not be hearing about how did this angelic... Yeah. Um, country girl or <laughs> from this to being an ISIS bride. Yeah. It That's would, the issue it in contention, right? Like you would not treat a Muslim perpetrating an act like this treated in the same way that this right-wing white nationalist has been. So um, another really, yeah, important thing that I think Waleed Ali um, did in that video was, um, yeah, like I said, obviously on the one hand he praised our political leaders for labelling this as an act of terrorism. But on the other hand, he didn't want to detract from the fact that these same politicians are the ones in large part that are responsible for at least initiating or propagating messages that feed the kinds of attitudes and beliefs that lead to people doing these things in the first place. So let's take our listeners down memory road. Um, This has been this fabulous cartoon by Wilcox. Um, And some of these um, phrases you may have heard spoken by some of our most senior leaders. We should play a guessing game where you say a quote and people have to try and guess the person who actually said the quote. Yeah, no, that's good. All right, (laughs) listeners. Um, So guess this one. We decide who comes to this country. I think that one's pretty easy. Yeah. (laughs) They may be pedophiles, rapists or murderers. Someone very senior right now. Mm -hmm. Stop the boats. That could be various people. Everyone. (laughs) Taking our place in the hospital waiting line. African games. It's okay to be white. Tidal wave of immigrants. A disease we need to vaccinate ourselves against. Final solution. Now, the final one is actually a very interesting segue into... (laughs) What happened with Fraser Anning this week? So what did he say that incited so much hatred? And keeping in mind that 50 people were slaughtered by a terrorist and this is our senators. Yeah, so this is a representative in our Australian (laughs) parliament, believe it or not, guys. 
New Zealand has Jacinda Ardern. Oh. Australia has Senator Fraser Anning. Pause and reflect on that. 19 people voted for him, though, so it's possible that we could vote him out. That's a message to everyone there. Please do the right thing. Um, but I'm not going to read the statement in its entirety because it's rubbish. It's rubbish. But um, I'll just repeat the most vile bits of it. Um, so Fraser Anning says, and I quote, The real cause of bloodshed on New Zealand streets today is the immigration program which allowed Muslim fanatics to migrate to New Zealand in the first place. And the second quote is, however, whilst this kind of violent vigilantism can never be justified, what it highlights um, is the growing fear within our community, both in Australia and in New Zealand, of the increasing Muslim presence. I don't understand how his first comment makes any sense because, and even when it was said, I was really confused because these people were killed. So how are they a threat if they were killed? Well, he does later on in his statement make reference to the fact that even though this most recent terrorist attack was perpetrated by a right-wing white nationalist, that the bulk of terrorist attacks, in his view, are still perpetrated by Muslim people, which also can be hotly contested. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, so I think he's citing this act as an outlier in the scheme of things. Mm. Um, But, yeah, I don't understand how... The rest of it really, I mean, I don't get it. I don't, I don't get how the fact that we have more Muslims here means that they're more likely to get killed in terrorist attacks. Yeah, no, there's no, there's obviously a, a logical disconnect here because I actually cannot make sense what he's trying to say. Yeah, it's victim blaming at its worst. Oh, at its absolute worst. And I think the the interesting thing that's come out of this tragedy is that it's highlighted the extreme differences between Australia and New Zealand. And so even just before we started recording, I was watching <coughs> them do um, the haka, a, a number of New Zealanders who've come to Australia. They've, um, I think last night there was one in front of the State Library doing that in memory of um, all people who were killed. And um, Jacinda Ardern's comments to Donald Trump when he was like, what can the US do for you? And she said something along the lines of love and compassion. Which wow. Is so, like, can you imagine our Prime Minister saying something like that. I genuinely can't. <laughs> and I think um, there was a really interesting article in The Guardian that I was trying to find, but essentially it's a new, it was written by a female New Zealand journalist and she was talking about how um, Australian racism and the, ca- the culture of casual racism is seeping into New Zealand. Um, and when I... Because New Zealand prides itself on being quite progressive mm-hmm. and, you know, they have very multicultural roots in the sense that um, they, there's a, a treaty with the Maori people um, and that's an essential part of their culture and the way that they communicate. Um, whereas in Australia, we have the precise opposite where mm. the land was never ceded, mm. we took it by force, lots of genocide, no acknowledgement of the Aboriginal and Indigenous peoples. And so even from that basis, we diverge so greatly. And the other thing here in Australia is that We've just spoken about some words that have come out of the mouths of our most senior politicians. What is it like on the ground? Like the casual racism that we've mm. just taken on as an Australian people. I um, When I found out it was an Australian person who had committed this act of terror, I felt ashamed and really embarrassed to Same. be an Australian. Same. Um, I think 
Jacinda Ardern is the perfect role model for our politicians here in terms of how you deal with a tragedy like this. Um, like you said, the fact that she said the response to this should be all about love and compassion, the fact that right at the outset she said, right, we're changing our gun laws right I now. Know. Can I know. Can you mean, imagine that in the States? No. Oh like, you know, how many, yeah, you know, shootings have happened there, like, and no action still. So It's a cultural thing as well, though, because some mm. New, Zealand's have, New Zealanders have willingly – um, and voluntarily given up their weapons. Wow. Wow. And I can't, I actually cannot imagine that happening anywhere but there. Mm. And so I guess my next question is, where do we go from here? I mean, is this our watershed moment for us here in Australia? They're our neighbours and it was perpetrated by one of us. Mm. I don't know. I mean, I want to be that hopeless idealist that thinks this will be the cataclysmic moment that will force us to reevaluate our beliefs and attitudes. But I feel like, you know, once people get over the initial outrage over something like this, that they then just move on to the next breaking news story of the day. And part of me just really worries that this will feed that mutually reinforcing cycle of violence. Like, I don't know if you heard, but there's been an incident in the Netherlands yeah, I'm not sure if they've labelled it an act of terrorism yet, but at first glance it appears to be likely. Um, so part of me just wonders if this is sort of, you know, the new reality of what we're dealing with, that every couple of months there will be an act of terrorism. You know, on one occasion it might be perpetrated by a right-wing nationalist, on the other hand it might be perpetrated by a Muslim, and then who knows whatever other race, religion, uh, gender. Um, but actually, just on that point about gender, mm. um, do you find it a little bit unusual that nobody's talking about the commonality of gender when it comes to terrorism yeah I feel like there have been studies and stuff like academic type studies but nothing really in the mainstream like I haven't really heard any politicians or any media outlets talk about the fact that regardless of whether a terrorist act is perpetrated by a right-wing you know that white nationalist or a Muslim the common factor there seems to be gender and when you know women make up half the population but it seems that these acts are exclusively perpetrated by men Mm. it does make me wonder about how much toxic masculinity is also feeding into that I think a while ago when we recorded another podcast I talked about this episode on the cut about the link between domestic violence Mm. and mass shootings Mm. and terrorism is perhaps one step further than a mass shooting but essentially I, I think he's actually being charged with murder because it's easier. Yeah. Um, and so um, to take it back to my point, they were drawing links between how many of the um, perpetrators of mass shootings have a basis in domestic violence, which mm. as we've discussed over the course of this podcast has a basis in gender inequality and a notion that you're better mm. than your partner mm. and that gendered violence. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's not a sexy um, angle that anyone's going to go off on. I think it's sexier to ridicule people and put them in boxes as being brown terrorists and white Nazis. Um, but it, it certainly is an interesting angle. I haven't seen any female terrorists in Western society. Yeah, and I wonder, like, you know, obviously there are women out there who hold really um, prejudicial views, but it just seems like toxic masculinity at its core condones men expressing themselves in violent ways so maybe terrorist 
attacks are like the most extreme version of that, mm. that expression of violence. So what do you think about this motion to censure Senator Anning's thoughts? Well, not I thoughts, mean, his views. Censuring him is one thing, but removing him is another. Like someone like that is not fit to be in the Australian Parliament. And yes, that's a value judgment. I don't think we're going to be able to remove him. Also, the election's coming up. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, like we said, guys, if you do are in a position to do something about this, please do so. Any uh, listeners in Queensland, this is a <laughs> particular appeal to you. And also, get rid of Dutton while you're at it. Um, no, I think. There's an issue here that I'm concerned about. I'm always sort of straddling the line between obviously hate speech is not not um, tolerable in any circumstance, but I'm concerned that if we drive it underground, it will be much worse. And I don't know the circumstances of this accused and his um, interactions online and that type of thing. It may come out similar to there was a manifesto. Um, and it may be similar to, say, Elliot Roger, who had this very extensive um, history online. That was my first thought, too. Like, what is up with all these manifestos coming out? <laughs> and, again, like, there seem to be common themes running through them. Like, the men in them, um, so the men that perpetrate the acts and write the manifestos seem to always view themselves as the victims. They seem to feel really disempowered and disenfranchised for whatever reason. So, so did that come across in this accused? Yeah, yeah. So, um he so I only read excerpts of it, but more or less he was lamenting the fact that you know um, the Western world was losing its common white European identity, and that um, you know Muslims were um, oh what's the word um, you know birthing at higher rates than uh, non-Muslims and this whole yeah victim complex. Okay, like, yeah. So I feel like yeah, there's obviously a lot to unravel there. I think it feeds into what you're saying about masculine, like toxic masculinity and those ideas of I'm, I'm sure something else must have happened in his life for him to just sort of internalise all of that and then for it to come out at the extreme end of hatred mm. and terrorism. So moving on to our next topic, um, the George Pell sentence. We can finally talk about it. There's no more, no longer a... Um, suppression order. Yay. Um, so for those of you who might not be aware, um, Cardinal George Pell was recently um, convicted on historical child sex offences um, and his sentencing was actually the first of its kind. It was live streamed um, across media publications. So I was just watching it on my phone oh, as so I was on the train. Where... Yeah. Yeah. Um, so... I yeah I, I don't know I feel like as a as a defense lawyer I probably have an unpopular view on this whole thing um so when news came out that he had been convicted mm. I was quite surprised um because well for a couple of things um for a couple of reasons rather um you know convictions in sex offense matters are quite uncommon yeah um, and that's in part because the burden of proof is so high um, and the evidence is not really supportive of that kind of threshold. So, you know, um, the prosecution has to make their case beyond a reasonable doubt, but that's often hard to do when the only witnesses to the matter are the perpetrator and the victim. And in this case, we have one victim who has died. Yeah, that's right. 
Um, so yeah, in the first instance, I was surprised that there was a conviction, not mm. saying that it wasn't the right outcome, but I was surprised. And I was also eventually surprised at the actual sentence itself. I thought he was likely to get a sentence that was half of what he ended up getting. Hmm. So he got about six years. I thought he was looking at about three. So Was this for both counts? Yeah, that's right. For both victims? Yes. Okay. So um, there was a really good article on the sentence by, again, our our intellectual crush. Um, And the article was titled, Why We Don't Leave Justice in the Hands of Victims. So it was published in The Age, and I highly recommend that people have a read of it. I feel like that's such an inflammatory title. Yeah, I doubt that Wally Dully actually picked the title. Um, But, you know, give... The article was shot. Read it in its entirety. Because okay, so what's the upshot of this article? So the high-level summary of the article that it, is that it's all about um, educating the public about how the sentencing process works in Victoria. So Well, he is a lawyer, isn't he? He is, okay. yeah. He's trained as a lawyer. Sense. So he actually knows what he's talking like, about. Who else would ever bother to look <laughs> at the Sentencing Act? Um, so, you know, he talks about the principles underlying sentencing that – um, the criminal justice system wants to punish perpetrators and denunciate what they've done, but on the other hand, they also want to work towards rehabilitating offenders. They want to deter people from um, doing certain things. They want to protect the community. So there's this multi-pronged approach to sentencing. Um, and then he goes through the relevant factors that um, Judge Kidd would have considered in going about deciding on the appropriate sentence for George Powell. And it's a very well thought out judgment though. Yeah, very well reasoned. He And Walid Ali says that, you know, um, it may appear somewhat disconcerting to your average layperson because on the one hand, um, Judge Kidd criticises George Powell and says, you know, what he did was an incredible um, breach of trust that he abused his position as a cardinal to abuse young children. And he showed no remorse. And he showed no remorse for it by proceeding through a committal and a trial, and that's to be admonished and he's to be punished accordingly. But on the other hand, he also shows real compassion for George Powell by saying that, you know, the way that he was vilified by the media was unwarranted and that given his age and poor health, he's likely to find incarceration more difficult than your average person Mm. and I think sort of that juxtaposition of showing condemnation on the one hand and compassion on the other didn't sit quite right with a lot of people no but that's how sentencing works you know at the end of the day sentencing isn't about vigilante justice and just Mm. sort of admonishing this one person for all the failings of the catholic church it's about actually you know assessing his moral culpability when it comes to this offending and viewing him as a human being, I think. I think the difficulty with this particular judgment and sentencing was the fact that you are dealing with someone so high up in the Catholic Church and someone who has a very extensive history mm-hmm. of um, very publicly um, dismissing other claims of sexual abuse amongst um, other people within his um team i suppose which is irrelevant it's an irrelevant consideration yeah because judge pell addressed i'm uh, not judge pell <laughs> he's definitely not a judge anymore judge kid addressed that right at the outset and he, he said yes. i'm not judging you as a catholic as a catholic 
I am not judging you on your role as a cardinal. I am judging you on the offences before me. But what I find difficult was that he kept referring to him as cardinal. And it's just like a constant reminder. And I know that's his, um, maybe it's his official honorific. I don't know it what is. it's like in yeah. court, if you call people by doctor or whatever. Um, you generally have a title, so I think that's his appropriate title. Okay. Yeah. I guess it just... It keeps, Did you find that offensive? Not offensive, but it keeps reinforcing that we're not just dealing with an ordinary Joe Blow, because right. if it was just like, Mr. Pell, you blah, 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 mm-hmm. then I'd be like, oh, okay, yeah, whatever. But this just kept reminding you that it was like, mm-hmm. we're not just talking about any ordinary person. This is the cardinal. That's his honorific. That's his title. Mm-hmm. That's the position that he held in the Catholic Church. And that is relevant to his sentencing. You know, he makes reference to the fact that you are such a senior um, authoritative figure in the Catholic Church and that doing this sort of thing goes to your character. Which is why it's difficult to divorce it Mm. from the judgment. I get that. I mean, I am no fan of the Catholic Church or of organised religion altogether, but I just think it's really important in times like this that we are you know, held together by our humanity. We don't want to kind of lose sight of that because if we do, we've kind of lost at the end of the day. No, I agree. I think it's, um, I think reading the judgment is probably the first time that lay people get, or watching the judgment Mm. rather, is the first time that people who wouldn't ordinarily have um, access to the court system or the justice system get to see what they're up against. And I've always been very passionate about that disconnect between the real world and our court system. Mm. And I understand there are reasons why, and you as a defence lawyer, like, there are reasons why. There are particular things like suppression orders and, you know, um, the rights of the accused. But I think it's very difficult for, in a very emotive type situation here, where I know a lot of Catholics feel personally so betrayed by him, Mm. um, and I think, yeah, I, I can see from both sides why it's really difficult for the public to accept Me too. This. Me too. And I think I agree with you in that, you know, I am really passionate about the law being accessible to everyone. And I think courts have actually been quite guilty of not doing a good job at explaining what they do and why they do it. So I am actually really supportive of this more public approach um, of the courts in, yeah, like talking about their decision-making and explaining why they make the decisions they do. Because, you know, we're both familiar with um, academic studies that constantly show that when people are placed in the position of judges and are actually told what the law is and apply it, they actually give much harsher sentences out than the judges do that's right I think one of my colleagues actually said that she just came back from jury duty and it was like a pretty it was like an aggravated burglary or something like that and she was like saying she walked in with a particular view about crime Mm. and she walked out with a completely different view about it wow and I think that was the starkest moment Mm. of realizing just the mammoth gap between law and the real world and it explains why people get upset when I know people were upset with this judgment and sentence and so I think if they took the time to read the judgment then they'd actually um, sort of see the reasoning behind it and the legislative framework that sits behind it and Mm. um, you know it guides it's not just willy-nilly decision making it's very considered and very thought out yeah I think the public needs to make more of an effort in engaging with the law, but at the same time, the law needs to make 
a better effort in actually engaging the public. So there's work to be done all around. All right, well, on to something. I'm not sure if this is considered light. I feel like it's light relative to what we've already discussed. Yeah. So let's say it's light. Okay, well... So this week, there was, last week actually, there was a very interesting case in the US where the FBI finally cracked this very intricate syndicate um, involving cheating and admissions into elite um, US universities. So some of those affected included Georgetown and Yale and the Southern University of California or something like that. Excuse my ignorance of universities in America. Um, But the juicy bit, I guess, for all the celebrity aficionados out there is that um, two celebrities were caught um, in amongst a whole heap of other really rich people like partners of major law firms and that type of thing. Um, (laughs) Felicity Huffman, who used to be on Desperate Housewives, and Laurie Lachlan, who used to be on Full House. And oh, I love you know that her? show, and I loved her on it. Well. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're going to ruin my celebrity bubble. So both of, actually, Laurie Lachlan um, was arrested and actually put, she was held in, remanded in custody. Oh, my God. Because her husband, um, I think was out of town at the time and just didn't have time to pay the bail or whatever it was. And her husband is the guy who did Mossimo, you know, the... The brand, Mossimo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Oh That's my her God. husband. So this is the wealth we're talking about here. <laughs> On the other hand, Felicity Huffman is married to... Um, He's an actor. The guy in Shameless. Yes, William something. No, I don't know. Some white celebrity. White male celebrity. <laughs> Is it William H. Macy? Yes, that's the one. <laughs> I was like, see, white male remember. Um, so, you know, very, very privileged people. Mm. And so both of them apparently um, paid, I think Laurie Lachlan paid up to $500,000 to get her daughter into a university. And this involved a really elaborate boy of paying off um, this guy who ended up being the snitch. And um, he was the orchestrator of this coaching company, if you like. Um, a coaching company that specifically caters to the wealthy. And so they help the wealthy get their kids into universities. That's their sort of brand. Do you mean like a tutoring service? Yes. Okay. That's what they marketed themselves off on being. But what they right. actually did was it was a really intricate web of involving like coach recruiters from the university, so sport recruiters, and involving um, like specific um, ch- like testing centres and that type of thing. So what would happen is that these rich people would pay this guy and this guy would arrange, for instance, um, for the test, the SAT test, I think it is, to take place at a specific venue where he would sit the test sometimes or get someone else to sit the test or something like that. And then other really crazy shit like um, for the sporting scholarships, he would, um, I think one example was that he was like, just get me like an Asian soccer player and I'll Photoshop the face of the person on. Oh my God. And then, um, and other sort of ploys like getting them to come in on the sports scholarship, but then the first week they quit, like the student would quit or something like that. And so it's easy to kind of laugh at it, but I think for us, like being Australian, um, it's very difficult to comprehend um, but also it's robbing people of, so some of them were scholarship students. Some of the places were devoted to a particular segment of, um, and it might be a quota of like women or, um, African American women or something like that. But these were being taken away by these people who were actually cheating and using their wealth and privilege on top of privilege to gain access to these places. And that's why I was outraged by this whole thing. That makes me feel sick. 
sick. Like, what makes me feel even more oh. sick was one of the children. I can't believe I can't remember if it was Felicity Huffman or Laurie Loughlin's child, but they're apparently like an Insta influencer or whatever. And um, they were like, "Yeah, look, I don't really like want to go to class. I mostly just want to like make sure there's enough time to go partying and stuff." And like, I'm a scholarship student. If I was an American and had my place taken away by that dumb bitch, then <laughs> I would be outraged. Yeah. Because she's just wasting the spot. Oh my Isn't God. it meant to be on merit? That's the point. I mean, I feel like in places like Australia and the United States, there is definitely a move towards commercializing education whether it be at a primary school level a secondary school level or a tertiary school level but this is sort of on a whole new scale like inequality in the states is just at a new level and this this is just yeah a, a horribly extreme manifestation of it this is next level shit because yeah like in america it's um so I don't think we have any international listeners, <laughs> but I'm we have confident, yeah. we have hex, so <laughs> it's not so much of a pressing issue. Mm. Whereas in America, if you you don't get a scholarship, then you're not going to uni. Yeah, like, or you take out these exorbitant loans that carry exorbitant interest rates, and then you spend most of your adult life paying them off, and work ten jobs while you're trying to keep yourself afloat during university. Mm-hmm. It's just such a foreign world. And the other thing is being Asian. Um, Australians to be cognizant about in the States is that there is this um, racial quotas and so there was a scandal a couple of years ago in Yale and I think Harvard where they actually found that they um, the SAT scores required for Asians was higher than for white candidates because they said there were too many Asians doing too well <laughs> and so it's kind of like okay we try to play the merit game but when we do too well at the merit game yeah merit doesn't work merit, anymore no more merit, no more merit. <laughs> do away with merit oh yeah my God, that's nuts and so it's really super <clears throat> fucked and so education over there is only accessible if you are a trust fund baby Mm. and we're talking about elite education here like obviously community colleges and that type of thing but education we all know it's the key to social mobility um amongst our friendship group we've talked about how our parents have come here as migrants with nothing and yet we're middle class essentially yeah in one generation we've been able to lift ourselves from the lower class to the middle class Mm -hmm. like Whoever said America was a land of opportunity is, like, freaking deluded because if you've got this kind of education system, Mm. which is inaccessible to most people, and I think, arguably, we wouldn't be able to access it on Mm. the same scale. Like, I certainly wouldn't have been doing law at one of the best universities in Mm. the state. Um, There's no hope. Like, you're just going to – you're destined to be at that class forever. Well, I just hope these people get – prosecuted oh they are they're they're getting pretty prosecuted (laughs) yeah I mean I think it's really high profile now especially given the nature of celebrities involved but again my fear is that once this is no longer in vogue and the next breaking news story comes along that this will sort of fade into the abyss and then who knows by that time you know charges will have been withdrawn or plea deals would have been done and for the most part people will actually escape real scrutiny. I think the issue with the reporting on this matter so far is that it's been a bit trivialised. It's like, ha, 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 desperate housewives gets really desperate. Yeah, as opposed to like, oh, my God, what does this say about American society? The fact that, yeah, education is a privilege, not a right, and that 
the you know wealthiest who already sort of have it's so good are just sort of exacerbating that division between the poor and the rich. It also suggests that these kids were so shit because they should have been able to get in on their, like, privilege alone, right? Mummy can just build a new, like, science wing. <laughs> and that is the traditional way of doing it. They just donate. I think um, if anyone is interested in getting into a really serious deep dive about this, the Daily Podcast did an excellent rundown of it and interviewed um, – a lot of people who have gone through the system and talked about sort of the social mobility aspect of it and how much it hinders um, students who will not, not be able to access it because these places are taken up by these damn cheaters. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would highly recommend that if anyone is particularly interested in that. But I think it really goes, I don't know, it, it's really struck a chord in me because in Australia we're seeing the beginnings of it. Um, we see it with secondary education mm-hmm. and it's interesting we were just talking about what yeah. secondary students expect out of their um private high schools and that type of thing both of us teaching as well like you see that sense of like entitlement, entitlement. yeah um and it's quite baffling to mm-hmm. be completely honest if that's where our education system is going we do have time for recommendations this week. Okay, this is actually the light portion of I know, the, the podcast. So <laughs> you, I can see you've got a few, so I'm going to let you take the mic. Okay, so um, let me start with what I've been watching. So I have hijacked your boyfriend's Netflix account. Thank wow. you very much. Um, and I have been obsessed with Orange is the New Black. Um, so I watched the first season when it originally came out, but I think in the course of about two months I'm ready to start the last season, which is the seventh season. So I've Far been, out. Yeah, I've been hard at it. Like on average I think I'm watching anywhere between two to four episodes a day. It's pretty hardcore. Um But in short, for those of you who don't know, um, the show is set in a minimum security women's prison in the States, so something very close to my heart, being Mm. a defence lawyer. Um, And yeah, I love the show for so many reasons. So I think fundamentally what I love about the show is the fact that it does such an incredible job at humanising these people in prisons, um, which people and shows are not particularly good at doing, right? Because prisoners are those people that do bad things that that need to be put away. Um, But each episode generally focuses on a particular character and shows their backstory um, leading up to the moment they came into prison. Um, So I really like it in that respect. Um, It's also really good in the sense that, you know, there are no particularly good or bad characters the characters kind of evolve. So they're all a bit nuanced. Yeah, so you might, you know, watch the first few episodes and have the impression that a particular character is the evil character. Mm. But then, you know, say in another few episodes, all of a sudden that person is someone that you actually feel a lot of empathy for because they've been humanised so well by the writers. Um, Another reason why I really, really love this show is because of how just incredibly diverse it is. Yes. So, which we don't quite see on Australian TV. No, I don't think I've seen anything on Australian TV except maybe um, that Benjamin Law show. What's it called? The one. Oh, The Family Law. The Family Law, yeah, you know, but that's really an exception to the rule. Um, Just like Orange is the New Black is for American audiences, I suppose. But um, I think 
what sort of makes it stand out is it's diverse in so many different respects. So it's diverse when it comes to race. Um, the show does start off with this white middle-class privileged woman as the protagonist. And to be honest, I think that was strategic on the part of the creator to actually lure viewers in. Mm. Um, But once sort of, you know, the viewership was there, um, it's really the non-white characters that have taken centre stage. So there are a lot of African-American characters, there are Hispanic characters, there are Asian characters. Um, So, yeah, it's diverse when it comes to race. It's really diverse when it comes to religion. So you've got your Christians, your atheists, your Jews, your Muslims. Oh my god! Yeah, um, you also have a transgender character yeah. that is actually played yeah. by a transgender actress, which I'm fairly certain has never happened before. Mm. Um, and then the other, oh, well, actually, two more ways in which it's diverse. I know I'm sort of rambling. Um, <laughs> the most diverse show. On it's just so diverse. Um, so when it comes to sexuality, mm. you've got. Straight characters, um, gay characters, you've got characters on the spectrum as well, some Mm. that identify as bi, some that refuse to identify with any sort of sexuality. Um, Again, something I've never really seen before. You're usually pigeonholed as being straight or gay. Yeah. Um, And you're generally admonished if you're bi because that's not apparently a thing. Um, And then the last respect in which it's really diverse is when it comes to class. Wow. Um, Okay. Yeah, so... You know, you've sort of got your characters that are from, like, the ghetto or you've got your characters that are, like, from the country or you've got your privileged types. Like Piper. Um, like Piper, yeah. yeah. Um, white, middle-class white lady, for those of you who don't know. Who's in there for some sort of, like, white-collar fraud. Yeah, so she um, committed money laundering when dating her ex who was part of this, like, international drug racket. It's actually based on a true story. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. So that actually happened. Um, but, yeah, it's just so refreshing to see so much diversity on screen and just so much character development, so much plot development. Like, there's really no aspect in which I can fault this show. So <laughs> if you're looking for something new and super diverse, please watch it. You will be hooked, I promise you. I feel like you could do a whole podcast on that show. I am pretty sure there are podcasts that are, like, more or less, you know, fan clubs for this show. Mm, so maybe that's, that's the next thing I'll do once I've run out of episodes, just start listening <laughs> to podcasts about the show. But yes, that would be my recommendation. Did you you've, got, you've got a few other recommendations. I have a few, but I feel like I've totally hijacked this. I actually, I already made my recommendation. I think my one final recommendation mm. I'd make, and this is not sponsored, obviously, because mm. we don't get sponsored. <laughs> We're not that popular yet. But I'm enjoying this app called Raise, which I think I told oh, you about. Oh, you did. This yes. micro-investing app. So I heard about it on another podcast called Shameless, which I think I've already recommended. Um... And essentially, because a while ago, you know, last week we were talking about finances and I said, like, when my friends started talking about shares and stuff, that's when I was, like, freaking out a bit about my financial literacy. Um, That was a number of years ago, so it's taken me, obviously, like, five years to get my shit in order. But um, Raise is essentially an app that um, does the micro-investing for you. So it essentially can take money from just your roundups of your normal ordinary expenses. And so you don't necessarily need to put any or consciously think about depositing money into this particular account before it gets invested. You can just simply select um, to round up to like the closest dollar or the closest $5. And then they'll take the roundup of that and then put it in your raise account and invest it. So is the app actually linked in with like a bank account? 
it's linked in with your bank account. So your spending right. goes into that. So a roundup goes into that and then okay. they take the proceeds of that to then invest it into whatever portfolio you've selected. So there's a number wow. you, can, you can select. You can select like the conservative one, the moderate mm-hmm. one, the aggressive one and the eco-ethical one. Mm-hmm. And so um, there's lots of options. And, you know, it's, it's relatively, if you're not investing much, which I'm not, but I just wanted to kind of get a bit of financial literacy about what my potential investments could be, what, um, you know, whereabouts would go and like, you know, get just that scaffolding before I actually open up a Comsec account and go hardcore into diversifying Mm. some of my assets. No, you've inspired me to actually give it a go because yeah, I am like you in the sense that my brain just shuts off when people start talking about shares properties and the like because i don't particularly value those things well, but we I'm, talked about last yeah, week it's important the disparity between men and women women yeah. when it comes to um to their finances and in mm. particular in investments and the way that we speak about mm. it so and being financially literate doesn't mean that you become you know a selfish asshole when it comes to money no. i'll I probably think- lose all my money <laughs> Um, and you know you have to be that's the risk-taking behavior you need to adopt in this Mm. actually one of my colleagues when I was explaining this to her she was like oh so it's like glorified gambling and I'm like yeah that is what the share market is yeah absolutely it's just for rich people yeah that's the only difference that's what daddy's always tell me (laughs) yeah and she's like there's no stigma to it and I'm like yeah yeah but it's the same thing still if not you're losing more yeah yeah exactly so that's my recommendation okay well I've got two more recommendations I promise I'll be really quick um First recommendation is a book by Kathy McClellan called Saltwater. So this was a book that was given to me before I moved to Darwin back in 2016, but I only just recently got to reading it. But in short, um, it's a memoir. It's by a sitting Queensland magistrate about her experiences working for an Aboriginal legal service up in Palm Island. It's pretty much like your life story, but like... Yeah. 20 years later. I feel like I'm just generally gravitating towards things that remind me of my work, which is not something I ordinarily like to do because I, I like to separate work and life. But It's good, though. It's aspirational. Like, if you want to be a magistrate, yeah. you can just, you know. Yeah, and that's what this was. Like, it was just like, oh, my God, you are such a boss. Like, you know, she talks about the fact that on her second day, she has to go to court on her own and manage a whole duty list and she's got somewhere in the vicinity of 30 matters. And then on her third day, she's, like, confronted with this child who's been held on remand for murder. And this is just another day at work for her. Um, it's really intense. Um, I should preface this recommendation by saying that you probably shouldn't read it if you're in a bad place because... Um, most of the memoir is her telling the stories of her clients, Mm. which in large part are really depressing and really dispiriting. And I was actually just doing some random Googling um, about her and the book because I was so enamoured with her. Mm. And she was talking about the fact that, you know, she knows that in the moment that the work she was doing was really important. You know, it meant that someone, you know, could go back home that day as opposed to stay in prison for the night. Um, but that on the whole, she felt like none of the work actually addressed the systemic issues that led these people to come to court in the first place. That's a very common issue that we face as lawyers. Yeah, exactly. Especially working with disadvantaged clientele. You're working in like a, yeah, very imperfect system. Like, you know, you might get playing whack-a-mole. 
Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. That's what she says. Mm. So, um, yeah, it was eye-opening for me because, you know, I definitely envisage myself going back into full-time practice one day and I definitely am considering whether or not I should go and work, you know, up in the Northern Territory again or go out remote. And so it was good to kind of come across the realities involved with that kind of work mm. because it's really easy to kind of romanticise it when you want to. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that is one recommendation. And then my last recommendation is another book. You've been smashing through the books. I've been reading few, like furiously because it's one of my New Year's recommendations. Oh, no, New Year's resolutions, sorry. <laughs> um, I have to read at least two books a month. Oh, okay. Um, so this is a book. That was actually recommended by you. Mm, I heard him inter- being interviewed by Mia Friedman. Yeah, so um, it's Richard Glover's The Land Before Avocado. And the premise of the book is that the author is sick and tired of people nowadays romanticising the 60s and 70s. And he goes about actually doing research into a bunch of different aspects of society in those decades and more or less uses it as an opportunity to tell you, hey, guys... It wasn't that great. It wasn't that great. You've got it really good now, um, so shut up. Um, For instance, (laughs) the fact that um, Commonwealth public servants had to quit as soon as they got married. Women servants. Women, of course. Um, And, you know, he talks about the fact that up until the concept of no-fault divorce was Mm. introduced by the Whitlam government in 1975, you had to establish one of 14 grounds for a divorce. And um, I didn't actually know this, but one of the grounds... Um, is adultery, which I did know, but if a woman was to be divorced on the grounds of adultery, Mm -hmm. then you only needed to prove that she engaged in adultery on the one occasion, whereas if it was being alleged that the man had been unfaithful, then you needed to demonstrate a repeated pattern of adultery in order to, (laughs) yeah, satisfy the ground. What was the rationale for that? Um, I think sexism. (laughs) Patriarchy. Oh, my gosh. And I remember our um, family law lecturer saying that back in the old days, they'd have to hire private investigators to take pictures and to make all that evidence. He talks about that too, you know, the fact that the husband and wife would concede adultery had taken place was not in and of itself enough. it wasn't. You needed to have independent evidence. So you had these husbands and wives, yeah, employing private investigators and um, sort of having these like elaborate setups where they would get one of the partners to be in bed with someone else and like take a photo and like submit it as evidence in court. Like, isn't that ludicrous? I mean, I think I'm very used to hearing a lot of from like MRAs about why the family court sucks. I, 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 in fact, I'm certain there's someone who's named their kid something along the lines of the family um, court sucks. Like, I, I remember it. it was in the news. Wait, are you being serious? Yeah, I'm being serious. Oh, my God. No, I think you're being hyperbolic. No. Wait, so a parent named their child the family court sucks? Yeah. Something along those lines. I will send you the link. Did the registry agree? No. To, okay. No, I think they tried to and then, like, they're all litigious. I think they tried to go to VCAT. But anyway, um... So I hear a lot from uh, the, those people who mm. say that the worst thing that was ever introduced was the Family Law Act and the no-fault divorce because now it means all these fucking women can just go <laughs> off and, and divorce you if you're a shit husband. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's really eye-opening to read. Um, there's also this particular excerpt that more or less talks about all the gender-based discrimination that took place. Um, and, you know, it says here, like, a lot of these things I just didn't know so it said that up until 1983, 
um, a married Australian woman needed her husband's permission to be issued with a passport. <laughs> um, Why? Yeah, well, a form of, like, coercion and control, right? Because a woman can't travel freely unless she has a passport. Wow. So, yeah. Um, it says here, you know, up until 1984, a married Australian woman could not open a bank account, purchase property, or maintain a credit card without her husband's permission. Like, it's all just this. And that's not that long ago, 1983, 1984. Can you just choose not to get married and then just game the system? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think you could choose to do that. But, you know, think about the social condemnation involved with being an unmarried woman. I'm just wondering if there was a way to get out of it. I think that's such a good reminder. It's such a good title because you know Mm. how everyone's talking about us being the smashed avocado entitled generation. Um, And, yeah, I think it's easy for us to lose perspective of how in certain respects we do have things really good. And even just before we were talking about that social mobility, Mm. Um, okay, maybe our parents had free university, but we are still getting to participate in this education system for now. Um, hopefully it doesn't get any more <laughs> commodified. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, we're getting to smash these boundaries. We're getting more women in the workforce. I think we're making some, like, yeah, sometimes yeah. it's easy to lose perspective. And it makes me really hopeful too. Like for me to think that there were those sorts of restrictions in place up until fairly recently makes me realise how far we've come and how far we can actually still go when it comes to things like gender-based, you know, violence, for example, or family violence. It makes me hopeful about, yeah, what we can achieve. That's a very optimistic note to end up on. <laughs> so we will hopefully bring you an episode much more sooner than what we have well, previously. Annie, Anna's bought us like fancy mics, so that is going to be a really good incentive for us to record more than we have been. Well, thank you everyone to, who's been listening to us. That's the reason why I bought the fancy mics because I realised we actually have a list and a share. <laughs> Not thank you to the person who gave us a one-star rating on iTunes. <laughs> oh, Anna. Can you please tell everyone what you did when you found out about the one-star review? Oh, obviously I gave myself a five-star review <laughs> and a comment. So can I just ask, anyone who appreciates our free content, um, if you wouldn't mind just hitting us up with a five-star or whatever, but not a one-star. I just want to get rid of this one-star. Like how... I'd, you realise that no matter how many five-star reviews we get, we would have still got this one-star review. He didn't even leave a comment or she didn't leave a comment. <laughs> they did not even leave a comment. So, you know, I feel like we can't. Please be constructive with your feedback is what Anna's trying to say. <laughs> yeah, I can't even address it. If it's an issue with the mics, new mics are coming, new sound is coming. Um, and, yeah, so, you know, stay tuned for next time. See you guys.